Hey, it's Jed Hearn, host of Wizards, Warriors, and Words. If you're enjoying the writing advice on this show, you might like my new podcast, The Jed Hearn Show, where every week I share the best fantasy writing advice that I've learned from publishing three fantasy novels and a best-selling video game. There's over 12 episodes that you can listen to right away, including my top 10 fantasy books of all time, how to make fantasy names that don't suck, two rules that make writing effortless, and my complete summaries of Brandon Sanderson's and Neil Gaiman's writing classes, and much more. Check it out by searching for The Jed Hearn Show in your podcast app. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Jed Hearn, author of Across the Broken Stars, and for this solo episode, I'm joined by one of my very favorite authors, Gabriel Bergmoser. Welcome back, Gabe. Thanks for having me back again. What? How, how, many, how many have we done now at this point? That's what I was wondering. I think six or seven. I'm going to put a... Like, um, what I'll do is I'll put like a link down below to like all of the previous episodes we've done, ones. and I'll probably put them in a playlist because like could pretty much be its own podcast at this point. <laughs> well, yeah. And, you know, there's, um, it's funny because there's part of me that wanted to say like, you know, uh, seventh times the charm or something, but, um, but I'm like, I actually just <laughs> not confident in terms of how many we've actually done by now. So, so I'll leave that in your capable hands. Fantastic. Well, I think it probably is a seventh. So yeah, hopefully the seventh time around we'll, we'll say something Fingers smart. Crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. You'd think so after that many attempts. Um, so for people who haven't heard the previous six iterations of this, do you want to just, uh, quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm um, so I'm a Melbourne-based author and screenwriter. Uh, I guess I'm probably most well known for my book, The Hunted, which came out in 2020, and um, I was you know was lucky enough to to become a bestseller, which was really exciting and sort of you know changed my life. Um, and yeah, since then I've written sort of a mix of things. You know, I've written YA, I've written sort of a follow-up to The Hunted. I've done a couple of Audible originals, one of which we're speaking about today. Um, and then in the meantime, done a lot of screenwriting work as well. Uh, I used to do a lot of theater stuff, but I haven't really had time since I guess the, the book side of things sort of took off a bit more. So really it's the classic sort of jack of all trades, master of none kind of thing for me. I would say master of at least a couple of those trades. Um, I've said this publicly before, but like you're in my top five favorite authors of all time. And a couple of your other books that I really like as well, which I'll just show up. Uh, if you're just listening to this, I'll read them out as well. Boone Shepherd. Uh, that was your first published thing. Uh, we've got The True Color of a Little White Lie here, which kind of ties into stuff we were talking about before this episode because it's set in a skiing town, which is where you are currently. And The Inheritance, right now, which yeah. is the sequel to The Hunted as well. So, um, yeah, you have like a pretty prolific and is actually stuff. Um... Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy when you put them all side by side there because it's just like, oh, and that's why I don't have a life. Um, but, um, <laughs> but it's funny because the inheritance, um, the inheritance actually is, well, by the time this is released, it'll be out, but it's 
coming out in this like very sexy new cover B format, which is completely pointless for anyone listening, but for anyone watching, it's this new cover that's coming out uh, on August the 2nd, I think, in Australian stores. But I would imagine by the time this is out, it will have already happened. So anyway, great new cover. Yeah, it's a sick cover. I think that I definitely prefer that. And in general, the UK editions of like The Hunted and The Inheritance, I much prefer the covers of that because they've just got, you probably- They're very different. Yeah, you yeah, probably don't want to comment either way because you don't want to offend anyone. But I like the UK ones just because they're very like, uh, if you haven't seen them, they're very like sort of, at first glance, they look really simple. They're just like a little farmyard, barn house um, in a sort of red splotch. And it just looks like sort of a red pattern. But then when you look at it closely, it's actually blood dripping down the cover. And there's a little bit of the blood that sort of forms into a hook at the bottom of the hunter's cover. And if you've read the book, like that will just bring back some not so lovely memories for you. So I really like the direction that yeah. Dumbledore's. <laughs> um, yeah, look, yeah, they're, so they're today... really cool. They're very striking. Um... Oh, yeah, no, sorry. Oh, yeah, sorry. Say, was I, there, um, I think yeah, we've got like a bit cool, of a weird delay going and, on um... here. Yes. Yeah, slight lag. Um, you go. <laughs> anyway, look, I like all the covers um, because, you know, they, uh, they're they on my books and I am just still blown away by the fact that people are coming up with images to go on the front of my books. So, no, they're all awesome, but I'm yeah. very excited by the new look inheritance. They are pretty sick. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about your Audible original. So do you want to just maybe set the scene by giving a brief description of what this story is about? And I'd also love to know how Audible approached you to work on this or whether you approached them or some other uh, combination of the two. Okay, so this is the first time I've spoken about The Hitchhiker like in any kind of public context or like in any conversational context. I've written a little bit about it like in, um, in blogs, in my newsletter and whatnot. But this is the first time I think it's really starting to hit home for me how hard this book is to talk about without spoilers mm-hmm. because it kind of starts piling on the twists really early on and to kind of talk about a lot of the things that I find really exciting about the book or that I really want to delve into would mean spoiling the ever-loving hell out of it. But in the interest of trying to like lure you in to to get to that point, basically The Hitchhiker follows a middle-aged guy who effectively you just get the sense that he's going through a bit of a midlife crisis and he's kind of a little bit Ned Flanders, a little bit Ted Lasso, just kind of this like daggy guy traveling through middle of nowhere, Australia with no idea of what he's doing. He's never done anything like this before. He's woefully unprepared and pretty much every dodgy or dangerous thing that happens around him. He just seems to be taking as a, Oh wow. What a like crazy fun, random thing to happen. So, you know, an idiot. And then basically uh, one day he's driving along and he sees a hitchhiker waiting at the side of the road. He sort of thinks, oh, I'm not supposed to pick up hitchhikers because my my wife always said I'm not supposed to pick up hitchhikers. But then he kind of thinks "But my wife's not here right now. So in this like really stupid, impulsive moment in the middle of nowhere, he picks up this hitchhiker who very immediately it becomes clear is bad news. Uh, He's erratic. He's on edge. He's clearly very interested when the driver mentions the fact that he doesn't keep any of his money in a bank. And as the audience, we should very slowly begin to get the sense that this hitchhiker does not have good intentions for this driver. But the the fun of the story, I think, and the tension of the story, at least initially, comes from the fact that the driver has no clue what is going on with the hitchhiker. And so a lot of the fun in that first part was writing this just completely oblivious character in a clearly dangerous situation that he's clearly not equipped for, but just seems to have no understanding of what he's going through. So 
that's kind of the start of it. But then that's kind of only the start. And that's where I think we're going to run into some challenges when it comes to discussing this book. Well, what I thought we could do is uh, we'll have a portion of this episode, which is spoiler free. And then once we've kind of eclipsed that, we can say, okay, it's going to be spoilers from now on. And we'll let people get out if they want to, you know, listen to it or whatever. Uh, And then we can talk about it with all the spoilers because they're, I finished the book yesterday. I loved it so much. And I totally agree with you. The amount of twists and like just insane things that happen in it. Like it goes in a totally different direction to what I was expecting at the start. And I'm saying that as someone who's read all of your other books as well. So I am generally aware of what tricks you try to pull. So yeah, let's go spoiler free for the first, I don't know, like 20 minutes or so. And then we can uh, assess how we're going from there. So I'd love to ask like, how was it different to write for the medium of um, well, how was it like working with Audible, basically? Like, how did you kind of get in contact with them? And um, what was their interest in working with you? Yeah, so, so this one had a bit of a, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure how much I should go into the behind the scenes stuff on this one, but I That's will fine. anyway, no because I don't know the answer. So I can't get it wrong. Um, <laughs> hey, <nice>. Basically, <laughs> so what happened with this one was, um, Pretty much the context for Audible Originals is that it started to become this really common thing where a lot of um a lot of a lot of uh established authors basically are writing these novellas with Audible. You know, Audible either approach you or you approach them and you write like these kind of short, usually around thirty to forty thousand word novellas, and they get released exclusively through Audible, or at least Audible have the exclusive worldwide rights for six months. And then after that, if you want to publish it in print, you can. So, for example, we've seen this with um, with Jack Heath. We've seen it with Carolyn Ovington. We've seen it with, like, uh, Benjamin Stevenson, quite a few. Actually, no, Ben Stevenson, I don't think, has had his published in print yet. But Jack Heath, I think, had a massive success with uh, Kill Your yes. Brother, which came out on Audible, and I think hit number one and hit some, some ridiculous amount of downloads. And then six months later, I think, also became a bestseller in the print format too. So you, you can kind of go with both, but it's... It's kind of it's kind of a tricky thing just because often with the Audible originals they're they're a lot shorter than your standard novels and then obviously like for the publisher you know you'd want the book to be a pretty compelling sell to kind of I suppose make up for the fact that Audible have a six month lead on you. So what happened in my case was that my agent brought up to me the idea of doing an Audible original because quite a few other clients with the same agency had done the same thing and. Uh, I was in the midst of rewriting The Inheritance at the time, my second adult book, the sequel to The Hunted. And there was one character in The Inheritance who I found very, very compelling, but, you know, obviously he was a supporting character in The Inheritance. And I thought that the Audible original would be a really cool opportunity to tell his story kind of as a side, I guess, a sort of spin-off prequel to The Inheritance. And there was precedent for this because I think Dervil McTiernan did something really similar where her Audible originals have focused on supporting characters from her uh, her Cormac Riley series. So that was kind of what I did. And I, I pitched Audible this first one, which ended up being the consequence. And basically Audible were like, yeah, cool, we really like this. But they were also looking for a writer to write something that was kind of more of like an outback horror type story. And basically all they had was, we want something that's kind of like between Wolf Creek and Locke. If you've seen the Tom Hardy movie Locke, where he's just in a car by himself for the whole film, And they sort of just had this very, very vague pitch. And they said, look, if you think you can come up with something along those lines, then we'll sign you up for two Audible Originals. And, you know, 
obviously I am a working writer and I do not say no to paid jobs. <laughs> so of course I said, yeah, I can come up with something. So I said yes with no idea of what I'd come up with for this. And um, Always a good strategy. And then, yeah, look, at first, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so at first this one kind of sat on the back burner for a while. Like I was focusing on the consequence and focusing on the inheritance, which as we've spoken about before and I've spoken about a lot, was a book that, you know, became increasingly challenging mm. as it went on just because of, various you know plot related problems that it ran into as it went on and everything and so it ended up consuming a lot of my life and my time in the year leading up to its release but then once that and the consequence were out of the way i sort of had the freedom and the latitude to start thinking about the hitchhiker and i was kind of playing with the the very very vague parameters i had from audible you know like wolf creek kind of implies outback and horrory lock implies something largely set in a car and i was kind of playing with all of that and i thought okay well maybe i should have something that centers on a hitchhiker because that feels like a really good way to set that up and there's you know the very classic setup of the driver picking up the hapless hitch uh, sorry the hapless driver picking up the menacing hitchhiker and where it goes from there but then as i played with that obviously because the this kind of veers into tropes that we're very familiar with the first thing i started thinking about was how can i subvert those tropes how can i play with those tropes how can i take what we expect from this kind of story and turn it on its head so it's funny you raise the question about writing for the audio medium because in the case of the consequence my previous audible original i feel like i wrote very much to the audio medium like i almost wrote that whole novella as if it was a kind of extended monologue whereas the hitchhiker i wrote a lot more like i would write a novel you know and i guess part of it was the fact that the consequence was first person this was third person because it jumps between a few different perspectives and that felt like the cleanest way to do it but then for another few reasons that started to come up as i wrote that we'll get into in spoilers it started to feel like this was less of a sort of interesting spin-off side story in the way the consequence was and more that this was essentially my next novel in its own in its own right and uh and you know then there was sort of talk about like you know it would have a interest in publishing it down the line and everything and there's still kind of ongoing conversations about whether it will get a print release which i'm really hoping it will because as far as i'm concerned this is my next book but yeah. the writing itself, like really not dissimilar from writing a print novel, whereas, you know, with, with the consequence it was, it was a completely different ballpark. Awesome. Okay, that's, yeah, that's kind of interesting to hear, hear how that worked. And yeah, the consequence is also really, really good as well. And uh, is it spoiler? Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you a question, but then I realized, hang on, we're not up to the spoilers part yet. So I think what's <laughs> interesting, this is not a spoiler, right? But this is... Um, kind of referring a bit back to the original draft of The Hunted came out as a audio drama called Sunburnt Country many, many years ago. And yes. the start yes. of uh, The Hitchhiker actually gave me like really similar vibes to it, which I found quite interesting. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit to that like sort of reference between them? Because basically, yeah, for people who aren't familiar, Sunburnt Country was like this audio drama and it's about like a kind of, yeah, mid 20 something guy who's out in a, outback Australia trying to discover himself and have a Jack Kerouac style, like on the road adventure. And uh, then things go very, very wrong quite quickly. And yeah, it's interesting that you're sort of exploring that similar territory, but with some, I think, important and different twists for this. So yeah, do you want to just speak a little bit to that and maybe why you find that so compelling to explore? Oh God, it's so funny that you raise this as like, you know, this almost like inadvertently cyclical thing, because you're right. Uh, you know, The Hunted did start off as this audio drama. And for those who've read The Hunted, you know, uh, you'll know that it takes place in a now and a then timeline 
and where it cuts between this present day sort of siege at a roadhouse and this past story about a road trip that goes wrong and the two dovetail around the midpoint of the book. But the original version of The Hunted Sunbird Country was just the road trip material. You know, it was just that stuff. And it was about a, you know, I think a 15 to 20,000 word novella that was released as an audio drama through the podcast company I used to be involved in. And it's it's funny because, you know, The Hitchhiker, particularly in its in its inciting incident is very, very similar. You know, it's kind of a, you know, a hapless person traveling through the middle of nowhere, searching for something even he's not really sure he's looking for. And he picks up a traveler who is more than they seem and leads to no shortage of danger. Uh, the, the very clear difference comes in what happens next uh, <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. But, um, but, but you're, you know, it was actually a really big fear of mine coming into riding a hitchhiker because I was like, uh, going back to the outback after the hunted, you know, because it is going back to that same kind of setting. You know, it's the it's a sun beaten, vast expanse of nothingness. It's a long, desolate, empty roads. It's a sweltering heat in the cars. You know, it's it's kind of all the things that characterize the hunted. And I was kind of scared, you know, and and you know this about me from us having spoken many times, but I'm kind of terrified of repeating myself, and I was very scared that the hitchhiker would kind of be seen as like an attempt to recreate the success of the hunted but you know i think i think the book itself kind of for those who've read it puts an end to that notion because i think Mm. the concerns are quite different and where it goes is quite different and its style and its focus is quite different but in the early goings you know i had to find a lot of very small ways to try and differentiate it from the hunted and a lot of that came down to the voice of the driver in in that first act in particular which i really enjoyed writing because you know the difference is that for me the difference in character is that simon the sort of initial protagonist of the hunted is this hapless 20 something guy who's basically trying to emulate jack kerouac and doing a really bad job at it and he's constantly insecure he's constantly questioning himself he's having a miserable time on his road trip you know nothing is working for him until he ends up picking up maggie who then you know leads him into all kinds of strife whereas the driver in in this book is the complete opposite he's having a ball he loves this like you know he's out on the road and everything to him is like this kind of quirky fun little crazy thing that happens you know like at one point he meets this woman in a roadhouse and she's really rude and kind of condescending and clearly doesn't think he should be out here and his only thought is like oh what a great character how crazy is this and you know like even the heat he likes it because it makes him feel more authentic and basically i love the idea of this guy for whom nothing could phase him Mm. whereas like you know simon in the hunted was so neurotic of the hunted or sunburnt country but in both versions he was the same character he was so neurotic he was so questioning of everything he was basically like i would be if i took one of these trips with sky high expectations and it didn't quite go right i'd constantly be like is this good enough am i doing it right am i doing it right whereas the drivers have any of those concerns and there was something yeah and and there's there's if and we'll talk a little bit more about this in spoilers but there's also a um a recurring kind of uh, motif in this book of, of a certain Bee Gees song. And so when I wrote the first oh act of this, uh, <laughs> when I wrote the first act of this book, I just listened to that song on repeat while writing this first act. And I had the best time. Like that first act of just like, and you know if you've read yeah. it, like he sits in the car and he plays You Win Again by the Bee Gees over and over on repeat. And to him, it's like, this is this act of amazing rebellion because his wife hated that song. And he goes, I can play it again. I can play it as many times as I like. No one can stop me. And he gets really into it. And he keeps playing it. And I so enjoyed writing that because the thing is, you know, as, as you'll know from having read my other stuff, a lot of my characters are really broody. Like, you know, even like, mm. for example, somebody like Jack Carlin in The Consequence, who 
has kind of a bit more of a sense of humor than some of my other characters. Even Jack is like, you know, carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. You know, Maggie in The Hunted is so much fun to write because she has no limits in The Hunted and the Inheritance. But at the same time, you know, Maggie has a dark past, has a lot that eats at her. Uh, Nelson, the protagonist of True Color, you know, he's an awkward teenager who's constantly questioning everything. And Boone Shepard in Boone Shepard, you know, he's a fun character. But again, there's like, there's stuff that he's carrying. Until The Hitchhiker, I don't think I'd ever written a character who actually just doesn't have a care in the world. Yeah, I agree Like, who's just really happy and really just having a good time. And it was astounding to me how refreshing it was to write those (laughs) early scenes before, of course, everything goes wrong. And this is the Bee Gees. And, like, I feel like I was sitting there at my computer just tapping away with this big grin on my face (laughs) because I was just like, this is just totally different. And so You must look like a psychopath if you were writing that in a cafe or something. (laughs) Well, yeah, well, exactly. But, um, you know, my, my hope would be for people starting this who've read The Hunted that, you know, that the voice of Paul would hopefully, or Paul, the name of the driver, would hopefully be enough to differentiate it from the opening of The Hunted and to kind of place you in a slightly different territory. Because I think they are, even though there's a quite a bit of crossover between the books in terms of setting and whatnot, I think they are very different books with very different styles and very different concerns. And I think ultimately ground zero for the point of difference comes down to that difference in character. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think, yeah, his voice is is distinctive and unique enough that it kind of sets it apart from your other work. And in general, that's something that I really like about your writing is like, you just do stuff across such a massive, uh, you know, breadth of storytelling types. Like you've got the kind of whimsical, fantastical fun of Boone Shepard, and then you've got the intense darkness of the hunted and then you sort of have the like comedic sensibility of true color of a little white lie and everything and then this is something kind of different as well that in some regards almost uh blends a lot of those things without getting into specific spoilers but it's interesting you bring up the music note because i wanted to ask you about that like our we have a mutual favorite musician called bruce springsteen the man the myth the legend and um this was the first time I think you've actually mentioned him in one of your books. Obviously, you've written a play about him before, um, which I loved. Um, but yeah, how did it feel to kind of mention him in a book? And did you ever worry that you're like, oh, am I, am I using up my silver bullet too soon? Am I using up like, you know, my favorite <laughs> musician as a reference too soon in my career? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great question because I do think that generally speaking, I I tend to avoid really avert pop culture references. I've had a few here and there. Mm. I mean, obviously the um the Boone Shepherd books were highly referential, but more to like classic literature and classic music and everything. Yes. But um but you know, generally speaking, I do try to avoid pop culture references unless they are really entrenched classics, because I do think they do tend to date a book. Um in terms of Bruce mm, Springsteen, it, it me having not used him or referred to him overtly before now is not for lack of trying like I've, I've found several points where i did try to include his work and reference it in other stories but the reality was that it just kind of never felt right like it always felt indulgent i mean i think i've told this story possibly even on your podcast before about an early draft of the second boone shepherd book which is set in the 1960s where boone meets a young bruce springsteen and mm. the reality was that the only only reason that scene was there was because I wanted to include a Bruce Springsteen reference. Whereas like, you know, there are other famous musicians who appear in that book and there are other real people who appear in that book, but all of them served a really clear purpose from a plot and theme perspective. And like, I reread the second Boone Shepherd quite recently and I was kind of really pleasantly surprised by how, how not egregious I found those things because I kind of thought I would, but I was like, no, like everything has its place. And you know, I definitely- Even a chapter where Elvis just talks and Elvis quotes the whole time. 
which is one of my favorite <laughs> yes, scenes. I do. But, you know, that also does, um, <laughs> that does further the plot, you know, that does lead to yes. sort of um, some, some things that happen in the back half of the book. So it's like, yeah, if, if you can have these scenes that are funny or are indulgent, whatever, but they actually serve a purpose, then I think you get away with them a lot more than if you're just including it because you want to include Bruce Springsteen. So the reason I think he came up in this was, was kind of twofold because the use of the BG song was accidental. Like I started writing the book. I was listening to it because I wanted like a really jaunty, happy song that could put me in the mindset of this jaunty, happy person. And I, I sort of needed that. I use music a lot when I'm writing, but then I ended up including it in the story because I love the idea of this guy who thinks he should be listening. To, he thinks he should be listening to Bruce Springsteen. He thinks he should be listening to the Eagles and born to be wild and all those classic road trip songs. But instead he's listening to the Bee Gees because his whole thing is that like, no, I'm doing this my way and I love the Bee Gees. But the great thing about the song you win again, was that it's this if you listen to it it's this jaunty happy song that the more you listen to it the more sinister it becomes like the lyrics are actually <laughs> deeply unsettling and it's like it's the happiest song but what it's saying is actually like really quite terrifying and that felt perfect for a lot of what was going on in this book but then i thought okay look if i'm going to push the music inclusion then it kind of makes sense to me that in the second half of the book or the second part of the book where we we sort of veer to a different character's perspective that that character would have a musical motif as well. And that mm. character is a young kid who's basically stuck in a middle of nowhere town, going nowhere, no aspirations, essentially doomed to sort of repeat the same, like watch sports, drink, get somebody pregnant, rinse, repeat path as his father and as everybody else around him. And then essentially he sort of falls in love and gets caught up in this whirlwind romance and in these dreams of escape and of a future away from this. And you know, what musician in the world better characterizes those feelings and those ideas? And I could write to that because I know what it was like to be a small town kid whose imagination was set on fire by Bruce Springsteen. And so I thought, you know what, this is the moment to do it because I can completely believe that for this kid who understands the hardships of the world, but also has hope that he can get away from them, you know, no musician encapsulates that better than Springsteen. And I can write to that and I can make it authentic and it can actually have a place in the story that drives this character and gives him something that he holds on to, even in the moments where he has absolutely nothing to hold on to. So, so I guess the, the really short answer, and that was not a really short answer, was that it sort of came back by accident. But once it was in place, I was like, it's exactly right. It's exactly right for this character. It's exactly right for this story. It's exactly right for the contrast that it provides to the Bee Gees motif that plays out throughout the book. But um, but I guess I like to think that I wouldn't have done it unless I really felt like it had purpose because I've eschewed doing it in the past for that exact reason. In fact, I think I almost, because people know, people who know me know so well that I'm a Bruce Springsteen fan. And I know that anybody who vaguely knows me is going to roll their eyes the moment I start referencing Bruce Springsteen. So I feel <laughs> like I've deliberately steered away from him. I mean, even the consequence had like a Johnny Cash motif. And I'm not a big fan of Johnny Cash. I just think some of his songs sound cool. So I kind of just referred to those ones and pretend I knew what I was talking about. But I've kind of avoided Springsteen for that reason, because I I guess I knew that people would find it predictable and I didn't trust myself to do it for the right reasons. But I think in this case, I've done it for the right reasons. Yeah, I think it absolutely makes sense within this story. And I love those scenes where, yeah, that character in question is discovering Springsteen songs for the first time. And it kind of reminds me how I felt when I first heard them as well. So I really, really like that. And I think it's probably time to get into the spoiler part of this episode, because the more I was thinking about it, like, there's just not really any questions I can ask you about this that don't involve massive spoilers. For it. <laughs> you know, I've, the I've spoilers are the most interesting thing the worst about this. Yeah, no, it's fine. It's it's really cool, though, because, like, there are some stories where the spoilers don't really matter. Like, 
I don't know, there's some books where I can know the spoilers and I'll still have a great time going in. I think with this book, like you probably still will have a good time if you know the spoilers, but it is a totally different experience going into this thing blind and not knowing anything about it. And I think the fact that it's like, you know, free on Audible as well uh, is pretty sick because that's going to hopefully mean a lot of people just stumble over this thing and it becomes something totally different and just like absolutely shocks them. So uh, if you're still listening to this and you haven't uh, listened to The Hitchhiker, go check that out now and then come back because we're going to be talking about spoilers from now on. Uh, I'll see if I can put like a link to a free Audible trial down below and we might be able to get people to use that to get a free copy of it. Um, but as we've mentioned before, I think it's free on Audible because it's one of their originals or something. Is that right? The Plus Catalog. Yeah, The Plus Catalog. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, yeah, so, all right, let the spoilers commence. Um, yeah, dude, you did it again. Like <laughs> in, <laughs> in the hunt or in the original draft of the hunted in sunburnt country, one of my favorite things is that you think it's just this story about this dude discovering himself. And then halfway through that, he like dies and it just changes to someone else's perspective and it becomes a totally brutal, like gripping thrill ride and a totally different novel. And, uh, I was reading through this and I was like, Oh, you can't do that same trick again. Right. And then you do it. So do you want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the kind of way that you structure the parts and everything. Cause I loved it. Yeah. Okay. So, so I mean, look, this is, this feels liberating because, you know, I think there's two massive spoilers in, in this book, uh, like two, yes. two really big ones that I really do want people to experience blinds because, you know, I, I, I really designed them to be experienced blinds. And I think there's still heaps to enjoy if people know those things, but you know, I can't stress enough that if you are listening to this and you haven't read the hitchhiker, then please yeah, stop now and go away because they are, they are big and they do, you know, they, I, I really do think that the book will have a totally different level if you don't know what's coming. Agreed. So, so firstly, to come back to what I was talking about before, the idea of the, the, the hapless traveler picking up the hitchhiker, how do you subvert those tropes? So we go back to my, my thought process when I was coming up with the outline, how do I subvert that? And I was like, what if I write this character who is Ted Lasso meets Ned Flanders, completely hapless, completely idiotic, kind of charming in his apparent naivety. And then you realize very quickly that he's the dangerous one, that the reason he's not scared, the reason he's hapless, the reason he's not noticing, you know, any of these warning signs around him is because he's got no reason to be scared because he knows that he's the apex predator. And so that was kind of the first thing I found really exciting about it. And then the second thing, of course, was the idea of taking the apparently menacing hitchhiker and flipping it and making him the sympathetic character, making the dangerous persona that you initially see very much an act that he's trying to put on because he's desperate, he's on the run, he's scared, he's got, you know, some stuff in his past that accidentally has gone wrong for him. And he's just desperately trying to get to the girl that he loves to try to get a better future for himself. But the idea of in the first act of the book kind of, reversing it to make you think this is what's going on, this is what's going on, or to play on pre-established tropes and then to switch them as we get into part two and to be like, all right, now we're in a different case where the person we thought was the antagonist is actually the protagonist and it's actually his story and he's a sympathetic character and the person whose perspective we were rooted in is actually this menacing, dangerous serial killer. And then from there came this very exciting idea for me where I thought, what if, like, in the case of Jesse the Hitchhiker, his menacing behavior is an act. But mm. in the case of the driver, what if his hapless, happy, jovial behavior actually isn't an act? That's just him. That's he just him. happens to yes. like killing people. So I <laughs> love this idea of if Ted Lasso was a serial killer, like if the <laughs> happiest, most friendly, most likable man in the world 
was just a violent murderer, but he mm. never, ever dropped that persona. And through to the end of the book, he never drops that persona. There's yeah. never a moment yeah. where he actually really becomes more serious. There's moments where, you know, he might let on a little bit more, become more reflective. But this is somebody who kind of doesn't know how not to be happy. And there was something mm. almost really charming about that. And the fact that he's like, <laughs> well, he's found his bliss. You know, this is where he gets his joy from. But that became the really like devious thrill in this book was the idea that I could write a character like this and that would be the twist and so again i think that's something else that differentiates it from the original sunburnt country in that it's not a twist where our protagonist dies partway through and we shift somebody else's perspective it's a twist where our protagonist is not the protagonist and in fact you know by my yes. standards or my thriller standards at least the body count is quite low in this book comparatively but uh yeah, but you know like all all our main characters kind of get out of lives is there only one person? Uh, depends on if you count the flashbacks. Or, uh, yeah, there's a couple true. of deaths. Oh, yeah, you're right, actually. That's quite a bit, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. compared to the hunted, yeah, there's, there's like, a few, but body's it's, it's dropping not... every two pages, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a little bit more manageable. <laughs> yes. Sorry, I derailed you. Continue. It's relatively conservative. No, no, all good. But, um, but yeah, so, so look, it's those things where I'm like, yeah, uh, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't pretend that this doesn't have parallels or similarities to the hunt and i can't you know i mean one of the other parallels of course is one of the major spoilers that i'm sure we'll talk yes. about very shortly but that blew my mind. you know but the setting the structure the initial setup all of that is all very you know very similar to the hunted but i guess my hope would be that because I, I wasn't consciously trying to imitate the hunted i i would like to imagine maybe maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm only good at writing one thing but you know <laughs> i would like to imagine that like i wasn't looking at this and being like oh, I'm trying consciously to try to replicate The Hunted. It just happened that the story fell this way. But early on, I was like, all right, there are crossovers, but I've got to handle them as differently as possible. And I, I, I think and I hope that I managed to pull that off. But if not, it's like, for me, I had such a good time and this was such a different mode of writing, even though in some ways it certainly fits in the same, the same uh, tradition and even you know continuity as The Hunted and The Inheritance. But the the style of it and the approach to it, I found very different. And, you know, there were a few things I wanted to try where I was like, I actually, I want it to be less violent. Like that was a choice early on. I was like, I wanted to rely more on tension and mystery mm. than on over the top violence and bloodshed. There's even the deaths that do occur in the book are pretty PG rated. You know, there's kind of probably only one scene that is like oh. truly like <laughs> gruesome and disturbing from you a think physical the standpoint but the rest of the like, scene yeah yes i am oh man uh, that that is scene. like i don't normally um, like scenes don't normally get to me but that scene was like so well written and like so simple in its brutality that it just made my skin crawl and yeah i i love that oh, i'm that so it's fantastic. Well, it's it's funny you say that because um my parents have been listening to the audiobook uh recently. Nice. And um and I've actually kind of been a bit worried because you know, when people talk about the hunter, they talk about the scalping scene. When people talk about the inheritance, they talk about the decapitation scene in the motel fight. And those things keep coming up and I get like a lot of readers messaging me and they always reference one of those two scenes, which is really <laughs> cool like to think that you've got something that, you know, has managed to like lodge itself in the audience's head in that way. Yes. But I've kind of been like, ah, the hitchhiker doesn't really have something like that. And then my mum called me and she was like, what was that, son? What were you doing? Why did that have to be in there? And I was like, all right, I think, I think I'm good. I think I'm safe. I think I've got something that will like, you know, get under people's skin. Yeah. Um, But, you know, outside of that, really, there was a conscious choice to pair back on that. And there was a conscious choice to kind of, you know, I mean, the Hunt and Inheritance both have a sense of dark humor. I think this one has more of a sense of dark humor. Uh, but I, I did want to kind of pair it back. I did want to play with tension more. I did want to slow it down. And 
take more time with the characters because really there are only three major characters in this story or important characters in this story and everybody else kind of is just there to flesh it out a bit Mm. but i did kind of like the fact that by just focusing almost single-mindedly on these three characters and their demons and their interactions and their pasts i think that they ended up like quite fleshed out in different ways so there were quite a few things in this book that i feel like i did a bit differently and when i sort of listened back to the recording when I got the recordings through and you look, a lot of this is testament to the amazing work of the three actors of Guyton Grantley, Lee Cormie and Stevie McKeon, who like brought these characters to life, like amazingly well. And I can't wait for people to hear their work, but listening back over it, I was like, yeah, this is in some ways it's similar territory. In other ways, it's nothing like anything I've done before. And I guess I just hope that that tracks for readers, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. I think I definitely agree in the sense of like, the kind of simmering tension and suspense is really engaging. And I think particularly within an audio medium as well, it, it works quite, quite well. Um, one of the things you mentioned through that was like how much fun you had for this. And I definitely get the vibe from you that this was a really fun project for you to work on. So what do you think it was that like made it so appealing for you? Do you think like the kind of shorter nature of it allows you to just like, you know, get in, like sort of enjoy the, experience while you're having it and then get out before it's you know like overstayed it's welcome like was there something in your writing approach to it or yeah why do you think it was incredibly fun compared to your other books if that is if that is the case well yeah look i mean I, i don't think it's the length because i think in some ways the length of the audible originals for authors is a bit of a fool's gold because you do kind mm. of think, oh, yeah, sweet, you know, I can write, you know, uh, like half the length of a normal book and, you know, and that'll be, that. that's a job, that's awesome. But the reality is that often you do end up having to do a lot of work to overhaul them and rework them. Like I definitely did in the case sure. of Consequence. Like I reckon I ended up doing the same amount of work on the Consequence as I did on, you know, not, not the Inheritance because that was a cursed child, but, you know, <laughs> on The Hunted at least. Like it was, you know, it was very, very similar in terms of how much rewriting and reworking I had to do based on the edits. So... You know, and that speaks to my own arrogance of first signing off is being like, oh, yeah, sweet, half a book, that'll be easy. But, yeah, you know, but the Hitchhiker as well, it's not that much shorter than the other ones. I mean, you know, The Hunted is 67,000 words. The Hitchhiker is 54,000. You know, if you go down to The Consequence, which is in every way a novella, that's only 30,000. So The Hitchhiker actually is quite a bit longer and a bit bulkier. And it's a short novel, but it is a novel, like in, in terms of its length. But... But the fun, I think, ultimately, well, it's twofold. It's, and well, maybe it's onefold because the two things kind of tie in together. But one of them, of course, is the character of the driver. And it's just kind of writing this character who, for me, mm. was really unique. And for all the reasons I mentioned of, you know, his, his happiness, but also the fact that his happiness, you know, ties into his, his psychosis in a lot of ways. But yes. then beyond that, I think that what makes storytelling interesting, always, 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 and this is, you know, the number one rule that you'll get taught in any any film school or any kind of writing course or anything is that story hinges on conflict, right? Like story hinges on conflict, but I think where people make mistakes that they don't realize that there are so many different types of conflict. You know, there's this great, there's this great quote. Some, somebody said at one point where, what is it like the only story worth telling is that of the human heart and conflict with itself. And Mm. to me, what makes storytelling rich and interesting and engaging is, yeah, you have conflict between characters. You might have conflict between a person and a monster, a person, institution or whatever. But what makes that conflict more interesting is when there's conflict within the character as well. And if the conflict they have with somebody else actually is worked on a few different levels. So in this case, we have the hitchhiker, Jesse, and we have the driver, Paul, and we have a very real conflict between them in that 
Paul is attempting to do something to Jesse and not letting him go and tormenting him more and more and eventually physically harming him. And Jesse is trying to escape, but Paul keeps finding ways to tighten the screws and keep him there. Now that's conflict number one. Conflict number two that simmers under it, and to me is what made that conflict fun and made that more than just kind of a standard kidnapping story, is the conflict in personas. Because Jesse Mm. is desperate and he's scared and he's kind of trying to alternate between being the tough guy and trying to, you know, stand up to the driver, but also in the fact that he's just genuinely terrified for his life and he just doesn't really see a way out of this and he is completely overwhelmingly desperate. He doesn't really have time for, like, any humour or levity, whereas the driver is all humour and levity because he's just having an absolute ball. Like, to him, this is just fun. And to me, that added this, like, undercurrent of, pitch black humor where it's like we have this character who for whom the stakes could not be more life or death but the person he's up against just sees this as the most fun he's ever had and doesn't really take it seriously at all but ultimately you know they're they're in the same situation and that added this undercurrent to the conflict that made it really really fun because the frustration of jesse which ties in with his very real fear and then that frustration kind of compounds back around to like make him more scared or rather comes back around to make him more scared and compound what's already there is the fact that he's trying to like scare this guy he's trying to fight back he's trying to stand up against this guy and he just keeps smiling he just keeps smiling and playing the same bg song and having a great time and to me hopefully if i've done my job right that will make the driver scarier because you actually can't really reason with him or bargain with him because he's Mm. already decided what he's doing. And it's not a Terminator type thing where he's like, no, I'm here to kill you. It's him being like, no, I'm here to have a good time. Unfortunately, my good time is your nightmare, but I'm still going to have it and you're not going to stop me because this is great for me. And in some ways the driver's kind of like, why aren't you having fun as well? This can be fun for all of us. Like just join in, let's have a ball. But you know, they have very, very divergent ideas of fun. And again, that's where conflict comes from. So all of that just made it an absolute ball to ride. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you kind of bring up that point about how the driver has this other thing going on and is like this relentless force because probably about two thirds of the way through, I just started thinking about like a very different way of reading the book and you don't have to like confirm this or not because, you know, we love to love to leave the ambiguity out there as an author. But in my mind, the way I kind of see this is that this driver has almost become like this demonic force that is moving through the outback and like just sowing chaos wherever he goes and for me i'm like oh how is he so competent at doing this because like pretty much every time jesse tries to escape or try a new tactic or whatever the driver is just one step ahead of him and in my reading of the book i kind of imagine that this driver has been like you know traveling around the outback for years at this stage and has been going through this uh kind of similar events with lots and lots of other hapless like hitchhikers and hapless people along the way. And uh, yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to confirm or deny that or whatever, but um, I just kind of like to imagine that this driver almost went from being this like, you know, just average sort of suburban daggy middle-aged dude who was married to then he gets his divorce and then he leaves and goes out to the outback and he almost like, yeah, becomes this demon that is out there that is sort of showing like the, uh, kind of dark side of that repressed um, lifestyle that he was he was living before. What's what's your thoughts on on all of that? Am I reading too much into this? What do you think? Um, no, it's just like this is this is kind of a point where I'd love to plead the fifth, but that's honestly my reading. <laughs> like, is you know when I when I wrote this, I was like, in my mind, the driver is like mildly supernatural. 
Like, and I yes. didn't want to, you know, I never wanted to specify it or for anything to happen that wasn't, you know, within the realm. It, it's kind of like the same reading as like the way that Hannibal Lecter is written in the TV show Hannibal, where Brian Fuller, mm. the creator, you know, has often spoken about the fact that he says his reading is that Hannibal Lecter is the devil, but it depends on how you want to look at it. I mean, if you want to look at the show and Hannibal Lecter is just like an incredibly intelligent human being who's one step ahead of everyone, then that's all he is. But if you want to think, you know, that he's the devil, it's like, I think there's one scene where he like gets into a room that he shouldn't be in. And it's like, well, if you think he's a devil, he turned to smoke and slid under the door. If you think he's an intelligent human being, he picked the lock. And either interpretation <laughs> is valid because you can read yes. it one way or the other. So for me with the driver, you know, like initially I didn't want to have his backstory in there at all. You know, I wanted it to kind of be implied, but I didn't really want to show it. But there was a push from kind of several different angles to have that, uh, including editorially and also just from people who gave me feedback along the way. And in retrospect, I kind of don't mind it because, you know, I, I do. Oh, think I love it, the, the flashbacks. You know, I think it makes usually it so with like, Yeah, usually with like horror movie villains like this, I don't, I kind of, I think that they shouldn't be that explained. But then I kind of think, well, like Jason Voorhees is explained, Freddy Krueger is explained. Like it's just kind of characters like Hannibal Lecter who seem to operate on a higher level that you don't really want to explore that much. And I kind of think that there's something nice about the fact that his origin story is actually just so mundane. Like, it's not this, mm. like, you know, somebody burnt down the house with him in it. It's not, you know, somebody drowned him at a summer camp. It's not Nazis ate his sister. It's none of that. It's just, like, his wife didn't like him anymore. And it just led him to kind of snap and turn into this, you know, turn into, in his mind, what he always was underneath. And... You know, and th that kind of makes me think a lot about the Joker as well. You know, like th that I was, was going to bring that th character. Th the Joker up, yeah. was kind of in some ways a model for this, um, mm. which of course means that he needs his Batman. But we'll get to that. But uh, yeah. but the way that I kind of wrote this character, sort of going going throughout the story, was that I was thinking you know what, like, I'm going to take that reading where it's like, yeah, there are credible explanations if you want to find them. Mm. You know, he saw Jesse do this. He anticipated this. He thought about this. He thinks one step ahead. But my personal reading, and I would never do anything to literalize this, yes. is that he is, you know, he is mildly supernatural. Like, there is just something about him that has ascended and turned him into, like, this kind of otherworldly force. And I'm currently writing a different story that features the same character, but We'll talk more about Ooh. that in years down the line. But I'm playing with the same rules because, I mean, I guess now that we're in spoilers, we can talk about the way that it ends. But obviously yes. at the end, you know, there's a classic horror movie thing where he's seemingly defeated and then the body vanishes afterwards. And it's like one of the actors reached out to me and just said, oh, you know, like I gasped at the end when the trunks opened and he's gone. And I was like, yeah, look, I mean, logically speaking, he gets the shit stabbed out of him. Yes. He should not have survived that. You <laughs> yes. know, there's just absolutely no way that he would have survived that. But if you want to go with the, you know, the the realistic approach, well, all his major organs were just missed somehow and it was an yeah, accidental miracle. Fine. He was if stabbed you want to go by with my you know, just a kid. Approach, a kid doesn't know what to do. That makes yeah, sense. Who, you know, the, the stabbings weren't that deep. He was injured, mm -hmm. but he was fine. But, you know, if you want to go with the other approach, it's, well, yeah, he, you know, he he turned to smoke and slipped out of the, out of the car and was fine. <laughs> and that would be my idea for like recurring appearances for him is that, you know, we'll often see him very almost die, but then come back again and be more or less fine because, you know, but, but never, never in such a way that it's like, you know, you'll never see him get decapitated and then come back or anything mm. like that. You know, it's always got to be stuff that he could credibly survive, but, you know, at, at a pinch, like it's kind of pushing credulity just a little bit. Yeah, I love that approach to writing in general. And I think, you know, for if you're a writer listening to this, I, I just really love the idea of the author, like bringing this extra thing to a text that they have zero intention of actually like 
putting down in the text. And it's kind of that whole iceberg theory, right? Of like, you know, you're only showing a small percentage of your actual thoughts on this story or this world or this characters above the surface, i.e. in the pages. But what makes that little bit that's above the surface so much more interesting is all of these things that are kind of operating at a greater depth. And I think it's interesting that you mention the Joker as a comparison character as well, because I think there's that scene at the end where he's sort of trying to make uh, two characters decide, and we'll, we'll get to, I suppose, his, his Batman in a sense. There's a scene at the end where he is sort of trying to like corrupt the main characters. And that's like a very Joker thing to do to kind of be like, yes, I'm defeated, but like I sort of have won in a sense because I've made you start to doubt yourself and doubt your morality and question it. So maybe as a way to kind of lead into that, let's talk about Maggie because when the name just <laughs> when the name just appears, I was like, oh my God, what's going on here? Because I, I had heard the the references to Maggie earlier on in the book, right? Like there's, oh, there's like bikey gang stuff going on in the city and that very clearly follows on from The Inheritance, which has that wonderful scene at the end of it uh, involving bikies and, and fires and such. Um, but then, yeah, when she appears, I was like, oh, wow. And at first, I, I got to admit, I was like a little bit hesitant. I was like, oh, no, like, is, is this just going to be like a, a kind of pointless cameo in here? And I thought it would actually kind of work well if it was just, oh, Maggie appears. And as the reader, you know how competent she is because she's been in The Hunted and The Inheritance. And you're like, oh, she's going to save him. And then if he just continued on, that like that would have been interesting, but it also would have been a bit kind of like, oh, well, what, what was the point of having the cameo in here? But then what you did with her instead was really, really interesting. So do you want to just talk a little bit about like, yeah, why you decided to take that approach? Because in the end, I think it worked out really nicely. It's, it's really awesome to hear that because, you know, I, I, I mean, I think in some ways Maggie being in this book is maybe the worst kept secret in Australian crime fiction. But um, you know, I've tried to I've tried to kind of never confirm it directly. But um, nice. but I think I anyway. Look, you know, I've I have confessed to a few people here and there because I'm too excited by it. But look, honestly, what happened was that when I wrote the initial outline for Audible, you know, I, I had this idea of this reversal that would happen really early on, and then I knew that the, a large chunk of the middle of the book would be the the driver and the hitchhiker on the road together and basically the driver not letting the hitchhiker go and the way that kind of plays out mm. but as i came into the third act i was like and this is still only very much in the planning stages i was like there's got to be something that changes the game here there's got to be mm. some new element that comes in and shifts it because as fun as it is to write these two guys in the car and to have this guy constantly thwarting the hitchhiker jesse from escaping something has to happen to change it Yes. And then Otherwise, I just there's no thought, way Jesse well, can you know, escape. It's absolutely. And, you know, like to me, a lot of the characters I've used in the past are kind of, in some ways, they're toys in a toy box that I can pull out at any point because in my head, most of what I write does take place in the shared universe. And that's why I do, I do love little references and stuff. But I also do strongly believe that every book has to stand by itself. You know, I don't, mm. I don't ever want to write a book where it's like you have to read three other books to understand everything that's <laughs> going on in it because I, I think that every book, you know, every story has to be a story in its own right. And so when I sort of thought, well, what if Maggie comes into it? The moment I figured that out, and it was a shower thought, as so many of the best writing ideas are. Nice. Where I was thinking, all right, what can change the game in the third act? And then I was just like, oh my God, what if Maggie comes into it? And at first I was like, oh, be careful. Because at this point I was still working on The Inheritance. I was very much in the Maggie mindset. And 
you know, historically speaking for me as a writer, you know, Maggie is one of those characters who does tend to take over a story. I mean, that's what happened with The Hunted. Like, The Hunted was yeah. supposed to be Simon's <laughs> story when it was originally Sunburnt Country. Then Maggie came into it, took it over, and then that's what led to it becoming a novel and, you know, led to all of that. So, I mean, you know, like, Maggie inadvertently elbowing her way into stories has done well for me in the past. But that's not to say there's any guarantee it would do well for me in the future. So... When I sort of thought about it, I was like, all right, stop. I really have to unpack this and I really have to make sure that if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it for the right reasons. But once, like like, like many of those ideas that we have sometimes, once it was lodged in my head, it was lodged and there was no getting it out. Like once I was like, Maggie's going to come into this. I was like, well, it's perfect because, you know, it's the, it's the mythic West. It's the outback horror thing. It's this kind of heightened extreme world. And I'm dealing with this really extreme character in The Driver and it feels like the only person who's going to stand a chance of defeating him is going to be somebody who is equally extreme. And within all of my writing, the only character who is equally extreme is Maggie. So then the balancing act became, how do I not make this Maggie 3? Because mm. basically there was a while there where it very much was. Like originally, Jesse was going to pretty much die at that third act turning point, And then it was going to be Maggie and the driver for the third act. And that was what I was you know, working with for a long time, even when I started writing the book itself. But then when I started writing Jesse's perspective and I started writing his backstory and I started learning about like his love story with Ray and what was driving him, I was like, if I kill him off the third act to make this like a de facto Maggie three, that is going to be the biggest and cheapest cop out I can ever possibly yeah. <laughs> do as a writer, because it's actually not Maggie's story. It's his story. And if I take Agreed. his story away from him to give it to her, then it's, you know, and it just, everything about that just felt wrong. So around the midpoint of writing the book, I was like, right, he's not going to die. But then that leaves me wondering what's he going to do instead. And so basically throughout that development process, Maggie's role, or I guess the size of Maggie's role kind of grew and shrank and ebbed and flowed. Like there was a while there where I was going to bring her in a lot earlier and really make it like a definitive kind of, um, you know, Maggie three. And that probably coincided with like around the time that Harper Collins first started sort of talking about like, maybe do we make this your third book? Like I'm doing something else for them now, but there was that conversation for a while there as well. And then, you know, it sort of went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And finally I was like, look, she's got to have her part. She's got to come into it. I think it makes sense that she does this. I think she's the only factor that can change the game towards the end there, but I can't lose sight of the fact that it is Jesse's story. Like, I can't lose sight of the fact that it is about him. And so consequently, it had to be him who defeated the driver at the end. You know, I mean, Maggie obviously helps. There's a huge factor. But really, in the way the climax of the story plays out, all she does is keep the driver distracted long enough for Jesse to get free and stab him. Yes. But really, I was like, it had to be Jesse who did it. Like, it had to be Jesse who did it. And he had to work with Maggie. And that's kind of what it came down to. So Maggie helps. But basically, you know, she couldn't be... Like she couldn't be the story in the end. This couldn't like become about her in the third act. But then, you know, something interesting happened again then because in the first draft I wrote of this in the first version I submitted to Audible, the ending wasn't like drastically different, but the moral dilemma scene you spoke about where he mm. ties Maggie and Jesse to a tree and is like, whoever's still alive by morning, I'll let free. None of that was in it. Like the part where he opens the car door and Jesse really? springs out and stabs him. That was the end. That was how he was defeated. And that was where it was left. And the other thing was that the third act originally didn't have any of Maggie's flashbacks. It didn't have any of that stuff. So huh. that was kind of initially quite liberating because I sort of just said, you know what, I'm just going to write it 
as if Maggie is a supporting character. And I felt like it kind of took some pressure off her because obviously in The Hunter, she's looking for her mother. In The Inheritance, she's dealing with the legacy of her father. So the idea that this was just a story where she just happened to come in and help out kind of meant that the weight was off her shoulders a little bit. Like it kind of meant that she could be a bit more fun. She could be a bit funnier. She could be a bit like looser and lighter in how she handled things. And it was kind of fun to write her like that. But then the notes came back from Audible saying, she seems like a Marvel superhero. Like, who's this girl who's come out of <laughs> nothing about her past? Yes. We know nothing about what's driving her. Like, how do we, you know, how do we make her more human like the other characters? And so that became a challenge because obviously I didn't want to reiterate all the same backstory in case people had read The Hunt and the Inheritance, but also for people who hadn't read The Hunt and the Inheritance, like the editor at Audible hadn't, I had to make mm. sure that she worked as a standalone character as well and that, you know, you didn't feel like you were missing anything uh, by not knowing her backstory. So the solution I kind of came up with was to sort of, instead of writing a flashback or a sequence of flashbacks that spelled out explicitly what it brought at this point, I kind of chose to go for one that was a bit more thematic and kind of gave you a bit like, but, but sort of gave you all the answers to who she was, why mm. she was like this, what was driving her, but also kind of underscored a lot of the themes of the book, which then towards the end became became like a lot more personal for Maggie than I'd originally intended, you know, where it kind of got to the point where I sort of realized that the driver actually had inadvertently become this kind of perfect counterpoint to Maggie, you know, this perfect yes. sort of this other side shadow. of somebody who also, yeah, who was also like, you know, escaped, but, but like, unlike, it's almost like, he's almost like the opposite to Maggie in every way. Like they've both gone on the run. They both fled into the outback, but Maggie's kind of run away from a deeply, deeply messed up traumatic childhood. He's run away mm. from just like white collar, boring life. Maggie carries yeah. the weight of the world <laughs> on her shoulders. He doesn't have a care in the world. He's having a great time. And yet, you know, there's a great line where, sorry, I just referred to one of my own lines, a great line. I wish I had done that. <laughs> anyway, there is a line that I no, own it. Um, own it. There is, I'm going to, I'm going to, re- re- yeah. anyway, there is a line that I like where basically he is challenging Maggie on her choices and challenging her on the fact that she kills people. And she says, yeah, but I've only ever killed people who've tried to kill me. And I've only ever killed people who deserve it. That's different. And he's like, oh, either way you end up with a body in the ground and blood on your hands. And I really love that because it kind of ties into this theme that I'm kind of finding really interesting. And like the latest season of Better Call Saul has explored this really well, where it's like, Ultimately, if you do bad things for the best of intentions, how is it any different from somebody who does them for the worst of them? Like ultimately, Mm, how is it actually any different? And yeah, and that became this really, really interesting question that I was like, all right, so suddenly Maggie's role in this story has actually become more thematically tied in because she's kind of come up with somebody or she's kind of confronted with somebody who for the first time is actually challenging her on a deeply personal level, not on like a physical level, not on a level of like dealing with her past, but a level of being like almost like the worst thing Maggie can possibly hear, which is I approve. I love your choices. (laughs) I approve of them. Let's do more of that. Let's be friends because we're the same. And she's like, we're not the same. And he's like, well, here's all the reasons why we are the same. And it kind of ties into this like inadvertent theme that kind of crept out throughout this book, which is this idea of connection, which is this idea of like, what is, what is love actually? Like is love when you just kind of feel this deep and abiding infatuation with somebody or is love when you actually just feel this overwhelming need to like to do whatever you can to make that person happy. Mm -hmm. And the driver has this kind of twisted sense of love where he's like, oh, you know, I want people to be like me and I want to have friends, but it's selfish because, you know, he just wants what's going to make him happy. 
Whereas like Jesse just wants to do whatever's going to make Ray happy. And I think that's kind of the difference. And then at the end, you sort of end up with Maggie in this kind of in-between position where she's like, what, where actually, like, where do I actually stand here? And yes. I feel like in some ways it's left her in this place where she's forced to question whether her choices are selfless or selfish because, you know, she's, and that's, I think ultimately the theme of the book is like the difference between selfishness and selflessness, where it is that question being like, yeah, Maggie does things that help other people, but is that just an inadvertent byproduct of what she would be doing anyway? And that left her in this like surprisingly dark, ambiguous place at the end of the book where I was like, I almost feel like in some ways, this book leaves Maggie in a place where she's less sure of herself than we've ever seen her before because mm, the driver agreed. has actually confronted her on quite a deep personal level. And, and that sort of ended up leaving me in a place where I was quite confident that her inclusion was the right choice. Like I was quite confident that it wasn't me being self-indulgent. It wasn't just like, you know, a bit of like a bit of a wink for people who might've read and enjoyed the other books. I actually think that she does have a, role to play and it comes back to the you know the thing we're saying before about including the bruce springsteen lyrics where it's like if you're going to do something that makes you happy as a writer then you also have to kind of ask how does it serve the story how does it serve a greater purpose what does it do to make this story better and if it doesn't make the story better then you're probably better off without it but but in this case i think it worked but if nothing else, I just kind of really enjoyed writing that character again because I really enjoy writing Maggie. And, you know, I kind of accidentally came out of it thinking if I if I do write another Maggie book, which I absolutely intend to do, I would love to have a rematch between her and the driver. Like I would love to have like another book where the two of them kind of end up going head to head again and we get to actually see the conflict that was kind of left unresolved at the end of this book really dealt with between the two of them because I think that he provides a, a great foil for her that so far she hasn't really had. But I guess we'll see. You know, it depends so much on how well this book does. It depends so much on so many other factors. But I would love to do that. I definitely agree that it really does leave Maggie in an interesting place. And that was my sort of main thought at the end was like, wow, I really want to see what she does next and how she kind of deals with this painful truth that she's had to realize about herself. But um, we'll start to wrap this up soon. But I just wanted to tell you about my favorite scene in the book. And it's a very small scene towards the end where um, Jesse is planning to turn himself in after his uh, burnt down, uh, is it Mick's house and accidentally killed Mick inside. And the police officer says, oh no, a suspect has already come forward and confirmed they've done it. And he thinks it's Ray who's taken the fall for him. And he goes in and it's his dad. And all throughout the book, he's sort of seen his dad as the thing that he is running away from. His dad is the representation of um, everything that's wrong with his kind of small town life. And uh, he doesn't want to end up like his dad who, you know, just had his wife leave him and now just gets drunk and watches sport and like doesn't really do anything with his life. And that scene at the end, I found so powerful because it it really took that dad from just being like a kind of symbolic sort of throwaway character, like a necessary character to have to kind of give Jesse that motivation into making like that sacrifice at the end, almost like redeem him in a sense. And yeah, I just thought that was a beautiful scene. So yeah, do you want to talk a little bit to that? Well, I think it kind of came from, um, it came from kind of figuring out what the theme of the book was really, which is, which is weirdly for a book with like, you know, toe cuttings and stabbings and all this <laughs> stuff. It is this kind of theme about like what, you know, what is love? And I'm not saying the book has the answer because who has the answer to that? But like, but you know, it, we, we sort of have a different, I guess a cast of characters with very different ideas about what 
what love and human connection and selfishness and selflessness and all those things are. And I do think that like, you know, love is, love is often really complicated because we're, we're looking at a clash between our desire to do right by others with a desire to do right by ourselves, which is, you know, biologically ingrained in us as this self-preservational thing to protect ourselves and, and to make ourselves happy and do all of that. And ultimately, what do you want from another person? You know, a person you profess to love, whether it's a family member or significant other or whatever, do you want them to make you happy or do you want to make them happy? And that I found like a really interesting thing to explore because often the lines aren't that clear. So when I kind of realized that, you know, at the end of the book, Jesse and Maggie have this really tense scene in the car where basically Maggie is telling Jesse, forget about Ray, forget about the girl. If you go back and turn yourself in, you're going to prison for the rest of your life. You're done for. Don't go after her. Just run. Go find yourself a future. Get out of there because that's what Maggie would do. And Jesse's like, well, no, because I'm not, I'm not leaving Ray. Like, that's what I want. I want to at least try because mm. I love her and she's my everything and whatever. And then when Maggie leaves him, Maggie's like, I'm just telling you, don't do that. She gets quite angry because basically angry in the way that so many of us do when basically something that we desperately need to believe for our own sake is challenged by someone that yes. kind of can't be shaken from that path. And that's kind of why Maggie gets so angry at the end because she kind of needs Jesse to validate her then and he's not doing it. And so when she drives away, she's kind of looking in the rearview mirror and she's waiting to see if Jesse's going to cross over to the other side of the road to, to try to flag down a car and go back to the police station to turn himself in. And she leaves not knowing if he's going to do that or not. And so when Jesse goes back to the, back to the town, he, he ends up, you know, uh, hitching a ride, goes back to the town and finds that his dad has taken the fall for him. To me, that had to be there because that was vindication of Jesse's choice. Like Jesse made mm. the choice to go back and protect Ray and to do the thing that would like get Ray out of trouble because he thinks that Ray's going to go down for what he did. But instead his dad's already taken the fall for him because ultimately his dad does love him. Yeah. And where it's complicated is that, yeah, his dad is a selfish guy. His dad's kind of, you know, emotionally unavailable and sits around and gets drunk and watches TV because his wife left him because he's kind of broken by that. But when push comes to shove, he loves his son. And we've seen that earlier in the book where he hides Ray's letter, but ends up giving it to Jesse because he's like, I don't want you to be like me. I don't want you to be my drinking buddy. I want you to be happy. And that's, mm. you know, that's what love is. Like if the dad was a lesser person, you know, if the dad was more like the driver, he'd be like, oh, sweet. Now my son just wants to sit around and get pissed and like watch TV and everything. But that's actually not what, what he wants. Whereas like the driver wants somebody to be like him. He wants somebody to like sit there and do these things with him and keep him company, but he wants it for his own sake, not for anybody else's sake. And so basically that's kind of where that scene came from. And it's sort of like, but it also came from a pragmatic place of just being like, well, how does Jesse get out of this? Because, you know, he's, he's killed someone. He's, you know, there's a dead cop along the road and everything. Like, how does he manage to get away and get to Ray? Like, does he have a future? And obviously, you know, it's left at least somewhat ambiguous because who knows how Ray's going to react when he gets there. It's like, oh, by the way, I burnt down your dad. But, um, but you know, I, I thought I had to leave <laughs> Always it in like a, a introduction. place where at least, totally, where at least he had a chance because ultimately what Jesse wanted was not necessarily to be with Ray at the expense of anything else, but to at least have the chance to at least turn up there and present himself to her and give her that choice of whether she wanted him or not. And that's what he gets at the end. And so to me, what happens next is kind of incidental, but I'm really glad you raised that scene because it just ended up being like a really nice accidental little thing that just like, like sometimes happens in writing where you just find something that, you know, ties a nice bow on it thematically, but also makes sense from a plot perspective and also kind of wraps up a character arc. You didn't even realize was there because I didn't necessarily intend the dad to have an arc, but it just, it just felt really right when it went in there. And I just think it gave the book like a nice kind of, you know, 
oddly warm little capstone at the end yeah. that kind of exists to prove all of the driver's philosophies wrong. And that to me, even though the driver kind of gets away in the end, even though we don't know what happens to Jesse, even though Maggie's left an uncertain place, I think that thematic question is sort of resolved there at the end. And that's the most important thing to hopefully making it relatively satisfying. Yeah, I think it's so powerful when you can have a a book with a lot of darkness throughout it and then there's just, you know, like a few pages that sort of gives you a glimmer of of light at the end of the tunnel at the end. Um, A couple of quick rapid fire questions before we sort of wrap this up. First one is, if you could go on a road trip across Australia with any three other authors, uh, living or dead, who would you pick and why? Uh, Well, I'm in Tana French, number one. Uh, Thomas Harris, number two. Uh, number three, let's say Tana French, Thomas Harris, uh, and probably John Marsden, I would have to say. Oh, interesting. Like, which okay. is like a weird choice because I, cause I know John, like, you know, I went to his writing camp when I was a kid and everything. And, you know, mm. like we've been sporadically in touch via email ever since and, and whatnot. But I just find, you know, like the, the only time I ever really spent a sustained amount of time with John Marsden was, you know, as a kid in the writing camp and everything. And I just find, I find him such an interesting person in what he writes, in the fact that, you know, he's this brilliant writer, but he's now dedicated his life to education and everything, you know, but his mm. writing just shaped me so much in so many ways. I mean, you know, Tana French has inspired me more than any writer I've ever read as an adult. And, you know, I mean, Thomas Harris is just like, not only the ground zero for um for so much of what i've done but beyond that he's also such an enigma you know like this is a guy who created hannibal lecter and writes the most gruesome horrific things but spends his weekends volunteering in an injured animal shelter like how is that guy not interesting (laughs) like i would love to just like i mean look and if i believe me if i had those three in a car with me i wouldn't say a word because i would be so intimidated constantly by like genius (laughs) surrounding me but, you know, all of, like, I would just, I, I just, you know, I couldn't think of three more interesting people I'd want to, you know, pick the brains of and just kind of hear their thoughts on, you know, anything. Yeah, that is pretty sick. Um, if you had, so like, you're sort of, you've had a couple of books that have been all set within the same universe. Do you have a name for your shared universe that you're sort of writing in? It's all good if you don't. Uh, I, I, look, I the can't just think of it as the Maggieverse. Um, the uh, well, nice. Only because like, you know, obviously, obviously the Boone Shepherd books uh, being in their kind of heightened crazy thing are a different world, which I think of as the Booniverse, which is, you know, a catchier title, yes, I think. Which is a sick name. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but with these, you know, I mean, I think in some ways, you know, to me, the backbone of this whole universe is my as yet unpublished, ongoing, constantly agonized over manuscript windmills which i've been working on you know my entire adult life and so for a long time i thought of it as the windmills verse because you know a lot of the characters who you meet in these different books are characters who in some way had an important role here or there or even just a supporting role in windmills and i've kind of always just seen windmills as like the backbone to it but as of the year 2022 you know maggie's appeared this many times and there is you know (laughs) there is yet to be any any windmills thing on the shelf not that that will remain in perpetuity the case but i guess i'm just sort of like you know it would feel incredibly unfair to maggie who kind of kicked off this stage of my career as an author and has brought me you know international recognition i never had previously 
to then turn around and be like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm going to name it after this series of characters and stories that has come out all these years after you when you define this yes. this this universe and this world and everything. So I, I think it's only fair to be the Maggieverse. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, last one before you wrap up, what is something new or a new realization that you've had about writing uh, in the last year or so, if any? Oh, um... Possibly too complicated a question to ask as a rapid fire. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, it, it's, it's a big one. A new realization I've had about writing in the last year or so. Um, you know, I think I'm going to go with that I've started to realize, but this is just about me personally, my writing personally, you know, because yeah, yeah, that's a lot of other authors in. like exemplify what I'm about to say. And yeah, cool. And would, um, a lot of other authors, I think, would hear what I'm about to say and be like, well, duh, idiot. But I think that my writing up until now has probably been characterized by a certain insecurity about boring people or about kind of, you know, lingering too long in any one area and, you know, potentially putting people off or potentially kind of losing their interest. And that's kind of why I think that so much of like The Hunt and the Inheritance, even True Color, although it's not like a violent book, are quite frenetic plot wise. Like a lot happens very quickly in those books. But I think I just, I read like several interviews, several reviews of The Inheritance, and I remain really proud of The Inheritance. But I also have this theory where if a criticism comes up, more than five times you kind of have to at least think about it like whether it's you don't have to agree with it but you have to at least think about it and be like all right some people are you know are feeling this way about it is it right or is it fair or is it wrong and one criticism that came with inheritance quite a lot was that there's just so much going on in that book like it's not a long book but you've got maggie dealing with um you know a a, a, a mob from queensland with rogue bikies with ex-cops with other ex-cops <laughs> with all these different factions kind of surrounding the fact that with you know this kind of rogue awful lawyer and ultimately with her kind of grappling with who she is and the legacy of her father and everything and it's it's an extremely busy book and i do know that a lot of people were frustrated by how much went on in the inheritance or how much it was dealing with compared to the relative simplicity of the hunted which kind of just has one central problem which is human hunting hicks whereas the inheritance has like a lot and I still love The Inheritance and I like The Inheritance more than The Hunted because I find it a more personal book and I find it a more emotionally resonant book, at least for me, but I can understand that criticism and I can understand where that came from. Um, whether it bothers me that much, I don't know because, you know, I think that if you look at the mythologizing around a lot of the John Wick films, which was very much like an influence on The Inheritance, it's not dissimilar. Mm. But that said... I, I do think I have to hear it because enough people have said it that I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe like that is a fair point. And I also think that was probably a, an issue with the consequence as well, which also had like a lot of different factions, but was less than half the length of the inheritance. And so, you know, I do wonder if that was an issue with that story too, where I was trying to do too much in too small an amount of time. So I think the big realization I've had is that I can slow down, you know, is that I can kind of like, instead of like trying to stuff every idea into a book, I can slow down and let it breathe and let the characters kind of get to know each other and kind of take my time before I get to anything too violent or explosive or anything, you know, because I mean, in the, in the inheritance, like a road, uh, sorry, a, a drug dealer's warehouse gets blown up in the first chapter. Whereas it takes like probably about a third of the book for the hitchhiker to get to anything like overtly violent. But yes. I 
suspect it's not less gripping because of it. And so like with my new manuscript, The Caretaker, which I'm writing at the moment, um, I've really been slowing down. Like I've really been like, you know, taking more time and trying to build tension and build atmosphere and have less central important characters and try to just really flesh out the ones who are there and just kind of pair it back and just get a little bit simpler plot wise which I think lets you get richer with the writing and with themes. So that's probably what I've discovered. But at the time of recording, you know, neither the Hitchhiker nor the Caretaker have come out yet. So it could be that they come out and everyone's like, these are incredibly boring. Go back to the, the, the rogue bikers <laughs> and whatnot. But, you know, we'll see. That's, that's what I'm kind of playing with at the moment. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I kind of relate to that a bit. I think I've uh, one of the big criticisms of the Thunder Heist, which is just over my shoulder here, is that, it moves so fast and like so many people want it to be longer, which is uh, kind of flattering in a way because you're like, ah, oh, well, it's better than the alternative of people thinking that it dragged. But yeah, yeah I, maybe that's something I need to experiment with a bit as well. Anyway, Gabe, thank you so much for another fantastic interview. Like I mentioned at the start, we'll link to all of our previous chats below. Um, could probably just about do an eight-hour audio book, which is stitching together all of our previous podcast episodes <laughs> yeah, at this stage. This stage which is kind of nice. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Definitely check out The Hitchhiker if uh, you haven't already, uh, and that's on Audible, so you can experience the listening goodness of it right in your earbuds. Gabe, thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Jed. As we end this episode, I wanted to give a big shout-out to our Patreons who help support the show, and an extra special shout-out to our legendary wizard patrons, Talon and Daniel. If you want to help support the show and get access to a huge library of uh, exclusive patron-only episodes, go to patreon.com forward slash wizardswarriorswords. You can find the link in the show notes below. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.